Welcome to Equiosity, the podcast about all things equine, with a special emphasis on the horse-human bond. My name is Alexandra Kurland. I'm the author of The Click That Teaches, A Step-by-Step Guide in Pictures, and many other books and DVDs on clicker training. And I'm joined by Dominique Day, one of the co-founders of Cavalia. One of the things I enjoy about this podcast is we get to explore a wide range of topics. And even though the spotlight is very much on horses, there are times when we shift the focus a little to bring in other species. That certainly is the case in this current series that we're doing. This is part three of our conversation with Lindsay Wood Brown. Lindsay is a member of the Clicker Expo faculty. She was director of operations for the Lynchburg Humane Society in Virginia. And later she was the director of animal training and behavior for the Humane Society of Boulder Valley in Boulder, Colorado. The shelter work means that for certain protocols, Lindsay has worked with hundreds of case histories. That's the experience we wanted to draw on for this discussion of counter conditioning. In part one, we began with the basics. What is counter conditioning and how has it typically been applied? Lindsay has been rethinking some of the basic assumptions that she started with when she was first using these techniques in the shelters. She's looking at counter conditioning more as an operant than a classical procedure. And so the question is, what are some of the strategies that can make this type of approach, this use of counter conditioning, even more effective? And that's where we're heading in part three of this conversation. I remember once we talked about this, Alex, we were talking about, you know, how sometimes horses are scared of the the end door, the other end of the arena. And I was asking you, this was almost in the very first years we met, I was asking you, so what do we do? Do we desensitize them to the garage door and it's all about the garage door and we'll gradually approach the garage door? Or do you do something else? And well, you probably said it depends, (laughs) but I do remember that you told me um, that you had success with doing something else. Yeah. Then that it wouldn't necessarily be about the garage door. I would love to hear what Jesus, how he would explain that. Yeah. You know, these are the things we observe. Yeah. But yeah, what's, what's happening? Right. I mean, this is uh, with with the shelter work and all the other work, the opportunities that we've that you've had that we have of observing behavior, of observing these protocols, we see what works. And then it's the all right. Now, what's the why be, behind it? Yeah. Yep. And what is the how do you just how do I describe it? You know, what's the language that? you know, that helps, helps teach, you know. One of the examples, Dominique, that, um, that I found the most interesting in many respects was Zacho. So he was very afraid of the far end of that big arena. Mm-hmm. And he could be a very, uh, even though he'd you know, he was a super performance horse. He could be nervous. Mm-hmm. And 
as you'll recall, when I first started working with him, we built a classroom. Yep. So that whole change the environment. Well, how can we change the environment? The arena is the arena. We're not going to build a whole new arena or we're, you know, but in a sense we did that we created uh, out in one corner of this big arena, we created a workspace. And that was, when you think about it in terms of how Jesus talks about, you know, you've got to change the conditions uh, in order for learning to occur. There has to be a change in the environment. Well, that was a pretty major change yeah. in the environment of that arena. And it was. And then when the walls of the classroom disappeared and we were working in the main part of the arena, and he was working on, I, I would put down multiple mats and we'd go from one mat to another mat to another mat. And the mats themselves were, again, a change in the environment. They were, uh, you know, on the mat, these interesting and good things happen. But I could tell that when we were going deeper in the arena towards the that big, white, scary garage door, and it was a particularly big garage door right? yeah because yes. this 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 was the um the arena where we did uh, for cavalia the acrobats over the horses so it was like a four-story high arena it was a great place to work yes yes the door was really big yes yes so it was not it was not the usual kind of arena that people are might be picturing mm. but i could feel that when we got deeper into the arena that that he was nervous that he was his muscles were tenser his uh response time was a little slower and that as we went around the circuit and got closer to the barn end of the arena that he would relax and and i and his response time was much faster and you know there were all these markers that would say yes he's still a little worried about the far end of the arena and then i taught him the we'll call it the Feldenkrais hug, uh, where a hug is not just a hug, but it's so much more. But I taught him to hug. And this is a horse who absolutely loved, loved the hug. And thank goodness that he also had been taught, the grown-ups are talking, please don't interrupt, because that gave Yeah, us because he switch. would have spent his life flinging his head into your space so that no matter you know who you were or what you were doing me hugging. yes if you were in his vicinity he would have been saying i must have a hug and for what whatever reason because he you know he had lots of behaviors in his repertoire but that particular behavior he absolutely adored and and when you and he liked a really um, not just a little soft wimpy hug, but a real squeeze. And so we would we would march to the next mat, and I would and his part of his reinforcer for going to a mat was he would get this really solid squeeze of a hug, and then we'd go to the next mat, and he'd get another solid squeeze of a hug. And the fascinating thing is that all of a sudden. He was no longer worried about being in the deeper part of the arena. And all of a sudden, I could work him around the whole arena, past the scary garage door, into deep into the corners of the far end. I hadn't worked on that directly. I hadn't confronted him and said, 
you must go down, you know, like you, you must ride into the far corner of the arena. Or even positively reinforced approaching him. No, I hadn't, you know, I hadn't, I hadn't said to him, let's go down to the far end of the arena. Let's up. do a garage exercise. Up until that point, he wouldn't have been ready for it. And it would, and he was a big horse and I didn't need to deal with a big horse being afraid at the far end of the arena. But all of a sudden, all of that disappeared. And I I find these things absolutely fascinating. Would I have you predicted? You know, there may, be, there may be something else, too, in the antecedents, in a way, is the relationship. You know, all this bank account you built, all this history of reinforcement with the animal, which creates trust. Yes, all of that's part of it. But there was something that was very specific about the hug that really shifted things. And uh, I just, it's fascinating. So, you know, we can talk about the protocols and procedures, but, you know, what, what there was in that particular type of behavior that for that horse was the piece that broke a lot of things open for him. You know, when we talk about... I'm feeling stuck, I'm feeling stuck, I'm feeling stuck. And then and then you crack open a door and you can move on into the next set of puzzles. You must, Lindsay, you must have similar kinds of stories where you've just seem like there's no progress being made and then it cracks open for the animal. Yes, I'm sure I do. I'm, I'm you know, kind of happily lost in your story right now. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so I haven't been thinking of my own examples, but I do wonder if we're, if we're talking about how we have fluent behaviors, if we built this repertoire of other fluent behaviors, right? And that can, that can open up this door. And, and also sometimes I wonder, you know, do we also need to condition new reinforcers? And I mm -hmm. wonder if that's a little bit of, you know, what you're describing here, right? That this animal has a variety of uh, different reinforcers. And in that, context you were in you know there was a great deal of value in that reinforcer and I feel like there's something interesting there too when I think about you know often certainly in the shelter field often we don't condition a variety of reinforcers mm, it's food we have really um, very few we're limited in what mm -hmm. we can utilize because of that and many of the reinforcers at play aren't under our control the right. dog is you know spitting out food or blowing by food so that he can bark at the passerby mm -hmm. or you know engage in some other behavior that we would label as problematic but it's the only behavior that they you know one of the few behaviors that they have to access the very few reinforcers that they have and, and so in your in your presentation, maybe you can talk about that a little bit. You were saying that you teach the dogs to eat in the conditions that uh, trigger them, that it's a skill that they need to learn. Yes. Because if the dog's not eating and he's spitting out food, mm -hmm. what do you, you have nothing. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, yes, absolutely. But that, I mean, that's it exactly. If the dog is spitting out food, we have nothing. And in a shelter environment, we're really at a loss then. And 
I think what we've really glossed over there is that we need the skill of eating, right? Mm -hmm. I need the dog to be able to eat in a variety of conditions because if I don't have eating, I really can't, I can't, you know, do much else. Pretty much every behavior I need is going to be back chained to eating. Uh, so that is, it's, you know, not even a prerequisite behavior at this point. It's the, you know, what I call the essential behavior. I can't even establish the prerequisites if I don't have the essential skill of eating. Mm -hmm. And I think that that, I think we've missed it in shelters. I've certainly missed it for many years. We decide the dog is not food motivated or he's, you know, um, he's just over threshold, mm -hmm. right? And we chalk it up to those things or in, you know, in the, uh, it doesn't have to be the shelter field, but you know, it, it, it's the, we uh, put it under the guise of preference, right? My dog would prefer um, to play with a toy instead of eat food. And I think when, when we gloss over it like that, we lose out on a, on a real opportunity. I think it is essential that we condition those other reinforcers. And that's really about quality of life, right? I'm not saying that I don't, um, you know, that I don't wish to provide my dog what she prefers. I'm simply suggesting that in terms of quality of life, the more reinforcers any animal has, right, the better the quality of life. And I see that with my children, right? I need them to have a variety of reinforcers. There are, you know, lots of fun moments at home where they are reinforced by dance parties and spinning in circles and, you know, behaviors that are, um, can be loud, right? Excitable behaviors. And I need them to have some reinforcers that are um, you know, of a different topography, right? So I need to be able to uh, cue them with a whisper, girls, and have them turn and orient to me and I can, you know, whisper Play-Doh. And then we can engage in a behavior that is uh, a, what I would call a calmer behavior. So I just, I think that that the conditioning new reinforcers is something that is really going to benefit us. And potentially we need to kind of, you know, cast away that label of not food motivated or even the over threshold or um, even the preference piece and really think about will this animal benefit if there are some other reinforcers at play and how do I make the reinforcers really valuable in this context? And I think the dimension, too, that you add to this, you know, because when you have an over-aroused dog, some reinforcers will be more calming and some will be more exciting. If you start to tug when your horse uh, your, or your dog actually is completely over threshold, you may not get the kind of behavior you're looking for. Exactly. So it's... it's having many reinforcers, but being aware that not all reinforcers create the same kind of, of behaviors and of, of state, of emotional state. So when you whisper Play-Doh to your girls, <laughs> you're certainly not increasing the incitement in the room. Right. It's degrees of freedom again. I think it is. And I'm still kind of stuck there, Alex. Like I'm still thinking about Agassiz and I'm there's something, there's this piece that you talked about that I, you know, we're going to get off the phone and I'm going to start looking this stuff up because it's yeah. really interesting. If you only have one way to reinforce an individual, what if it's not available? Right. You're stuck. Yes. So that whole degrees of, and of course, this is for those of us who work with horses, we get so lazy 
in the reinforcers that we use because food is so easy to use with a grazing animal. They're, they're, it's a good reinforcer. It's a great reinforcer. And most of the time, it's available to us. Mm -hmm. It's not available to you if your horse is sick. But then a lot of things wouldn't be available to you if you, you know, the horse is, is feeling colicky. There are, you know, there are a lot of reinforcers that, um, you know, are not going to be working for you. But, you know, we, we tend to be, I would say, less imaginative about the reinforcers that we could be developing with our horses because, because they are grazing animals, because they can eat a lot. It, with a dog, you're you're going to fill up a dog a whole lot faster than you're going to fill up a horse. So you have to be a little more creative. But it, I think it's still that the idea of degrees of freedom, you know, as we, as we explore that, what does that mean in all of these different contexts that we've been talking about? And this is certainly one of them. Mm -hmm. the re when if the reinforcers that are available to you are so are too narrow your degrees of freedom are also narrow mm -hmm. yeah i really i find this part really really interesting and i can't help but i, I tend to bring actually everything back to my kids because you know well i could give you a, a million dog examples i'm raising you know two young daughters and uh you know it's a, a mirror in front of me every day of um you know, uh, behavior and how, you know, what do I want to teach them and how I, how can I teach them and how do I ensure that they have a variety of reinforcers so that they can engage in behaviors that are, you know, uh, the kind of behaviors I want in the house, right? The behaviors that are going to support them when they are in social situations. And, uh, you know, it's just, it's just so, I guess my point is simply that it is so relevant Yes. Personally. Yes. Well. I went to uh, Dr. C Susan Friedman's talk this year at the Expo on parenting, and I loved it. Absolutely loved it. And you know, I'm I'm not I'm not raising small children, so in, you could say in one sense, well, why why did you bother going? Because it's how relevant to you could that be? And yet, of course, it doesn't matter whether you're talking about raising human children or you're talking about horses or dogs behavior is behavior mm -hmm. and I love the way she talked about when her girls were little and if she, for example I think one example of the examples she gave was her daughter had gone to a birthday party or slum party of some sort and when it was time to leave her daughter had a meltdown and instead of getting upset or mad or doing all the you know or being embarrassed whatever they extracted themselves from the house and they spent the week then setting up through through play setting up the situation of learning how to leave that S Susan made it really clear to her daughter that this wasn't her fault that she was just uh, recognizing that she didn't yet have the skills needed for this particular social experience. And so they spent the week playing at you know, the dress rehearsal, and then they called up the mother of the friend, and they arranged for a play date, and they went over and they practiced, and, and it was all beautifully done. And I just love the concept of, well, I've, I've put my animal or my child 
into a situation where they don't yet have the necessary skills to handle the situation. I've gone for a walk around my neighborhood and and what I'm recognizing is my animal doesn't yet have the skills that are needed for, to be successful walking around the neighborhood. So let me go back and work on those skills in an environment where we can be successful. And I think that that piece is one that we often miss that we think we you know that we have to keep going for a walk around the neighborhood that you know if you have a a yard well maybe your dog could be could get its exercise and relieve in your yard Mm -hmm. as the training is going on and then when you have a broader set of skills you could go out and go for that walk and you'd find that well well, now we can handle maybe not the dog that's coming up the sidewalk directly at us but we now have the necessary skills to handle the dog that's walking uh, along the sidewalk across the street because we've got this other set of things that we can do so while that dog's going by we're playing hopscotch over here or you know we're we're playing fetch games or we're you're you're showing me your spins and you know I don't know what it is but you're showing me the skills that you need and I love that that takes dedication huh? Because sometimes, let's say you, you think, okay, I'm, this neighborhood is too arousing for my dog. There's all these barking dogs and loose dogs, etc. So every time I walk my dog, I'm going to put him in the car or her in the car. We're going to drive to a place that is calm. Well, that takes dedication. Yes. Sometimes you feel like, oh, come on, I'm just going to go for a quick walk in the neighborhood. And you know, you can, you can regress because of that. So it, it takes dedication. It takes also, I think, a commitment to learning because as you said, Lindsay, before, when it doesn't work, very often it's because the technique has been poorly applied. Mm-hmm. And so, um, and sometimes it's hard because you're on your own, you know, and you don't necessarily have someone to maybe help you see what you're not doing right. So it's um, it's not an easy thing to counter condition in that. And we also have to to look at, to stop seeing it as a flaw in the individual. That's a reactive dog. That's a, a bad child. That's a nervous horse. And see it as behavior that is being triggered by a particular uh, context. You know, when everything's been going really well, and all of a sudden, something happens, and like, you're embarrassed with your dog. Yes. And you have to remember this, this is just behavior. You know, sometimes you need a few minutes to get into that state of mind. And I would think it's even harder when it's children. <laughs> it is At the grocery store. <laughs> yep, it is. And, you know, I'm. there are many days where I am really grateful that I have any sort of background in behavior because I can imagine how hard, it, how hard parenting is without it. Um, it is, it's true. It's the, um, okay, you know, I just, I saw my, you know, daughter, display some behavior that I would say is unwanted and potentially I, you know, maybe feel embarrassed. And it's really the, okay, what, you know, 
what are the skills that I need to teach her? And we do um, practice sessions at home. And it's, they, you know, they're four and seven. So they have a grand time when we learn how to introduce ourselves to someone or how to say hello to someone when we're passing by and, you know, we role play. And it sounds so silly, but boy, is it effective when you teach those behaviors, you know, in the house first and have fun doing it. And then they have some, you know, now they're, those behaviors are part of their repertoire and they can start to do it when we're walking to school in the morning. I'm just thinking, wow, you know what? Cause that sounds so, well, duh, of course you do it that way instead of sort of teaching it on the go as it were. And, and you see these, all these small children that are being pushed towards adults. Now, what do we say when somebody uh, does something nice for you? Did you say thank you? Did you, and, and it's, and you can see the child just mm. crawling, you know, into his own skin, trying to get as far away from this as possible. And, and how different that would be to have turned that into a game that you learned. It's true. It's the, yeah, the pleases and the thank yous and, um, you know, gifts at Christmas time, whatever it is, we, what I met my best, right? And it's the commitment and the dedication that you talked about. It's hard sometimes to, to do that. It's, uh, it almost feels like it would be easier to say, you know, I heard you didn't say thank you. You know, remember to do this, please. And then my little daughter, you know, just kind of, she does, you, you know, she'll shrivel up, right? Yeah. And it just is that little like note to self when it happens. And, you know, tomorrow or before bedtime tonight, we'll play this fun game where we you know, practice the, we're going to a birthday party and, you know, I'm your birthday friend and you've just entered, you know, what might we say? that is just so much more effective for my children than, you know. These are going to be people who as adults can go into the the classic cocktail party setting and have some, and, and to be able to interact with people in a comfortable way. Yes, that's right. I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> so I want to bring us somewhere else. We've said um, on a few occasions that there's a lot of information out there, strategies out there. And I want to refer people, I have um, like an article here that Ken Ramirez did. I hope it's available on the internet. It's called Aggression, Treatment and Context. He actually made a list of all the different application strategies out there for counter conditioning. And there are lots, I'm going to name just a few there are more in this article, but just so people have a sense of, you know, a lot of people have put out information to try to help us. So there's Constructional Aggression Treatment, CAT, which is uh, Jesus, Rosales Ruiz, and his student, I don't remember first name, Snyder. Click to Calm, Emma Parsons, U-Turn, Patricia McDonald, BAT, Behavior Adjustment Training, Grisha Stewart, Abandonment Training, King, I don't know him. Look at that, Leslie McDivitt. And there are many, many others. And in this article, I find it interesting because he refers to what the science principles are behind these various strategies, what the advantages and the disadvantages of one 
or the other. It's it's a very interesting article. You know, when I read that the first time, I thought, oh, oh my God, there's so many stuff out there on the, and I'm sure it's not over. You know, I'm sure Jesus is going to come up with things that we haven't thought about. And this is still an area of research, I think, that can be quite promising because it's not an easy thing to do. No, and he did that article in part for the Clicker Expo because with all of the stirrings and the... But but my, my process for dealing with uh, dog reactivity and dog aggression, et cetera, et cetera, is... is um, the gold standard, not your yours, and so on. Um, so there was a lot of a lot of conversation, shall we say, going on on the internet. And so we did a he did a presentation at the Clicker Expo on the, these various approaches that people take. And and Ken being Ken, he was the total diplomat in presenting them. That he didn't present. You know, he didn't say, well, this one is is the best or this one is is rubbish or this one is great and that one isn't. It's a, this, they, they all are uh, procedures that have been used, used successfully. They have sometimes the differences. The between, and they're quite different. Yeah, well, some, sometimes the differences are one, when you look at them, there's, it's a matter of nuance. Sometimes they're there are quite dramatic differences between them. And and so it was an interesting talk in that here they are, and here is was Ken's understanding of the procedure, and here's um, the cons, here are the, the pros, and the conditions under which he might consider applying it. And it was, it was an interesting talk that he gave. But I think, Lindsay, where you're taking us through all of this is to say... You know, what is shifting for you as you are thinking about these procedures is that you are really seeing the operant component mm-hmm. yeah. and that that's what's moving for you is really moving the needle a little bit and creating what is often a really wonderful opportunity to rethink. I love those times where you sort of rock back on your heel and you go, huh, um, with this piece in place, every you know all these things that I how I how I've been thinking about these procedures has now shifted a little bit and shifted in a way that makes me see some possibilities that I might not have been so clear about looking for in the past. Yes. Is that kind of where where things are right now? Yeah, it's a really fun. Um, it's a little painful at times too when you really recognize uh, where your knowledge gaps are and I think it can be really easy to you know gloss right over it or just not you know not dig into those knowledge gaps and uh, this you know that talk that you saw me do was be really kind of sharing that whole process of it for me of you know having a protocol that was quite successful and there were little pieces of it that were bothering me, right? Little gaps in my knowledge or things that came up in the, you know, in running the protocol with all of those dogs that made me go like, there's, you know, there's, there is something I'm missing and I could ignore that. Yeah. Right? And, mm-hmm. and running a pretty successful protocol or I could really dig into it and try to figure out what is it that I, you know, what am I lacking here? How could I do this better? 
if I did it better, I can teach it better, right? And now I can, you know, change more animals' lives for the better. And, um, you know, it was just kind of years of, of shifting and evolving my perspective, really. And I think that evolving my perspective is really due to listening to mentors, listening to people who have a different perspective than I do. That made a huge difference for me. And I think what it's doing for me is giving me a more robust lens, right? Mm. I, can, I can see things now. I've got a better whole as opposed to getting, you know, skilled at one part of it. Let me try to look at, at the whole and really think about other people's perspective and how you know, people who grew up, you know, ABA, the, the behavior analysts, like what can they tell me? And there's a great deal that they can tell me and it makes what I'm doing um, more useful to, you know, to my learners, whether they be people or animals. Yeah, that's the, you know, that's the process I seem to be in right now. And I, I actually kind of love it. Yeah. Yeah, I, I feel like it, also love it because it's, it's so relevant in my personal life as well. Just, you know, professionally, of course, I make it, I can do things better, but I can do things better at a personal level too, when I can think through those different perspectives and adjust my lens and, you know, refine my lens. I love that expression, a more robust lens. I love that. And, and I love, you know, there's so much value in, listening to you talk and talk about this. Uh, I really so appreciated the presentation you gave. I, I, I deeply loved it. And I loved it in part because you were questioning and you were, you were showing us the thought process. And what a gift that is, because there are always things that each one of us that we're doing where we've glossed over. And, but when you're glossing over, you can, there's that little niggling. It's like when you're, when I'm editing uh, something that I've written and I'll, you know, I'll read it and, and, and it'll seem fine, but there'll be some, this little word that, you know, just a word in a sentence that I stop at and I think, and I'll read the sentence and, oh no, it's really fine. So I'll, I'll go through as I'm editing, I'll, you know, I'll come back to it later and, and I'll be tripped up over that same phrase or that same word and I'll, oh, no, it's fine. And then I'll come back to it again and I'll still be tripped up over it, at which point I'll pay attention and I'll look at that word. And, and what I will find is that, yeah, it, there was change that needed to be made. And yeah, I could have left it and it would have been all right. But by acknowledging that little tripping place and really taking the time to do something about it, all of a sudden now I have uh, a much better understanding uh, that, that the flow of the words communicates better, which is what I wanted. And so this that's a metaphor for when we feel that little niggling of, ah, it's not quite, it's not quite, it's easy enough to gloss over. But at some point, we want to stop and really look at what is this that keeps 
coming up and, and tripping us up. There's an expression I use in the training where I'll say to people, if you don't notice a little resistance, don't worry about it because it'll get bigger, you know, and, and eventually it'll get big enough where you will notice it. And then if you still ignore it, don't worry about it because it's still going to get bigger and eventually it will get so big that you'll decide that you have to do something about it. And hopefully what we want to do is look at things before they're so big that you can't ignore them. But just to start noticing all those little places as we're thinking about the training, those little places where we're just glossing it over and recognize, you know, what, what does glossing it over look like, feel like? And if we, if we notice those places sooner, then there's more of this potential for these deep ahas that create these more robust lenses. Yep, exactly. Yeah. And what a, you know, what an enjoyable process that actually is. Yes, yes, definitely. Nothing more satisfying than a ha-ha yes. moment. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, and you've certainly given given us both through the expo presentation, and which, by the way, if people, even if people haven't been able to go to the expo, uh, often those programs are available on video on demand through the Karen Pryor clicker training. So, but you certainly gave us an enormous amount to think about through that program. You've given us an enormous amount to think about uh, this afternoon. So Dominique, before we close, so as just sort of on the initial run through, do you think you have some, uh, some new uh, insights to take back to Canel? I probably have to listen again to the podcast, but certainly this idea of maybe integrating some training during sessions, I want to explore that a little bit. Yeah. So a lot to, a lot to think about, and we'll think about them both in terms of the, the dogs and in terms of the horses. And I think, um, Lindsay, it's been an absolute joy and pleasure to share with you this afternoon. And I really thank you for the time you've given us. And um, maybe you can come back one day and talk to us about what you have been doing in terms of in the shelters, giving more control to the animals in their environment. I would love to have an episode on that. I would yes. love to. Thank you. And it has been my pleasure. Thank you to both of you for having me. Well, it's it's been a joy and uh, to share this with you. And I'm just so glad that you have done the podcast with us. So we're going to um, thank you enormously. And we'll say goodbye for now. Bye. Yeah. I'm about to head off to this weekend's Art and Science of Animal Training Conference in Dallas, Texas. This year I'm giving a talk on shaping on a point of contact. That's one of my favorite topics to present on because it is such a linchpin for understanding how pressure and release of pressure can be blended into our training so it remains clicker compatible. I'm really looking forward to presenting on this topic for this particular audience because we always have 
a mix of academics and applied trainers. And most of the trainers are not horse people. So I think there are going to be some new ideas for people to consider. And it's going to be interesting to get the feedback and, uh, and listen to the discussions that these talks generate. So for me, it's going to be a really interesting weekend. Dominique is going to be attending as well. So I'm very much looking forward to meeting up with her. And several other good friends are going to be there, including several who have been guests on this podcast, including Cindy Martin and Michaela Hempen. These conferences are always such a great opportunity to catch up with people who I don't get to see very often. So next year, when the announcement for the Art and Science of Animal Training Conference goes out, I hope you'll consider signing up for it. It's always, always a great event. And the venue just lends itself to what I love, which are lots of discussions that go on well into the evening. So it's not just that you attend the conference presentation and that's it, but you can meet up with uh, presenters in the evening and sit in groups and listen to really fascinating discussions. It's a great conference. I'm going to have my microphone with me. Last year, I recorded a great interview with Dr. Jesus Rosales Ruiz. So who knows what we'll do this year. I suspect our next podcast is going to be very much inspired by the conference, even if we aren't able to actually record it there. So until next time, have fun with your training.